when we moved to Texas, I had this, this, this rhythm, this routine in ministry that I was used to. And of course, um, there was this strange disconnect. We, we had been happily in, in engaged in a church in Missouri for a number of years, and things were going super well there in our opinion. And kind of had gotten to this, this strange place where I began to feel like God was stirring in me and began to sort out what was next. And in that time frame, um, had a dialogue with my wife who disagreed with me wholeheartedly. And so, you know, just as you know, that people in, in ministry, we, we don't always agree. Just, you know, you look at me and my wife, we're not perfect in this regard. And she's like, I don't, I don't agree that God is telling you that you should leave this place. And so I was struggling with it. And I just told her, I said, I won't bring it up again. I'll just pray about it. I won't bring it up again until you bring it up. It was 10 months later that she looks at me and says, I think you're right. And, and I, I remember thinking that that was such a significant time. Ten months felt like a long time. And we got to this, this strange kind of moment then when, when then everything started to move very quickly. Um, we weren't sure what was next, but we knew we needed to pursue whatever that was and we were praying about it. Ended up in Texas, and I'll tell you what, that was so weird because when I got there, it was crickets. It was nothing. It was no no indication whatsoever that any church would ever ever be interested in me again and I had one guy tell me I sat down with many people made many handshakes made much conversation with lots of people even got an opportunity to preach supply for the church that had no pastor that we were attending that wasn't wasn't you know looking to to take that job necessarily but I did have an opportunity to preach there and will tell you that in that process I was so grateful that when God finally opened a door for us and we ended up in a church there that 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 I was I was ready rhythm of life, you know, eagerness of, and, and people will tell you, I press hard and I move quickly and there's lots of stuff and we have these great big ideas and, and all the things, but the cadence and rhythm of life was so much slower that it was really hard because there were things we would talk about. We would talk about it in a business meeting. We would talk about it in a deacon's meeting. We would talk about it as a church and nothing would happen. And it would be months sometimes. And I learned this proverb during that time that he who runs fast runs alone. Um, it's not a proverb from the scriptures that I'm aware of. I, it's a proverb from Africa, I'm told. And you begin, I began to realize that if I wanted to run with the people, I had to slow down a little bit. I had to pace myself. But man, there were things that I wanted to see done, things that I hoped for would impact the church and the kingdom and all the things. And it was just this waiting. It was always hurry up and wait. I had a boss used to say every time he made us wait on anything, it was a dollar waiting on a dime. Um, I, don't know, I don't think I felt quite like that when I was there, but it was an expression that I learned, and I was like, man, I feel like our king is the dollar, and we're not even a dime, and he's waiting on us all the time. And I know where he gets the patience to do that, because when we unfold the story that we're going to look at this morning, we see this amazing amount of, of, of preparation, these hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecy about what would unfold and how it's unfolding in the scriptures and how it, it ought captivate us because it's, it's rich with tradition and beautiful with expectation and it is this moment that all of history is hinged on coming to, to complete fruition. It is absolutely in front of us. So I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2. We're going to look at two passages, one in Matthew this morning and then one in Micah. And, and it's what is quoted in Matthew, but it's a little bit better fleshed out when we get to Micah. So some of you are like, I better find Micah now because I haven't found it ever before. And so you'll have an opportunity to giving you fair warning. But, but Matthew is where we'll start. Micah and the, and the minor prophets in the back of the Old Testament. 
Um, that's right before the New Testament starts, so if you need help there. Matthew chapter 2, if you want to stand with me and honor God's word, I, I would hope that we would do that to show respect and reverence to our king. Matthew chapter 2, verse number 1 says this. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Would you bow with me? Lord, we thank you that when we come to Scripture that we are challenged to see the truth of who you are and who you will be. That you are indeed the picture the, the, of this gentle Messiah, but you are King from the beginning to the end. I pray that as we look to the Scriptures today, we will know who you are. That in our heart of hearts that we would embrace you as King, but also as Shepherd. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I don't know about you, but there are moments when, you know, the promise sometimes doesn't live up to the expectation. I mean, are you familiar with anything like this? You know, some of you, some of you will remember uh, several years ago, there was this very popular toy that was, that was touted across the land, and, and little girls were excited that their parents had to buy this little thing that would fly. If you held your hand under it, it would fly. And, and immediately, the videos on the internet were wild with these dolls that would fly typically right into the fireplace or right out into the tree or somewhere to get stuck. And, and it was a huge disappointment. I remember taking one back to the store. I love this story about Jesus because it doesn't disappoint us. There's all this epic buildup for the entirety of the Old Testament from the very beginning until the moment that we, that we see it unfold. And we get to hold it in our hands and read the story I keep asking this question each week, and I hope that you will hear me ask it again, and you'll take it to heart. Could you tell this story without looking at it to someone who needed to hear it? Because when people ask us about the Jesus that we know, we will say the Old Testament told numerous accounts. I mean, some have estimated, I say estimated, have counted. They have literally done the math. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, over 500, 600 different prophecies about Jesus that are fulfilled in the life and person of Jesus and about his birth. Numerous, numerous passages are dedicated directly to it. And you say to yourself, if this story is not true, then what in the world is going on with this book to be right for hundreds and hundreds of years to see it unfold and unfold exactly the way that it was described? And we say, our confidence grows with the evidence as we study it. The arguments of those who disbelieve oftentimes are eroded when they see the facts, the truth, the evidence. It would be hard to cobble any one person into all those different things to get it right. It would be impossible in my estimation. I think that's why there are so many. But that being said, verse number one, let's get to the text. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he? who has been born king of the Jews. Typically, when we talk about this passage, there's this 
um, beautiful understanding of the, the heavens and their declaration, but today I want to talk more about, about who Jesus was. You see, it wasn't just that the heavens declared where to find him. It declared who he was. They knew from looking at the heavens to expect a king. Now, I don't know about you, but there is this beautiful picture of this, this, this baby born into this world. As my professor had always used to say it, wrapped in, in snuggly clothes. You know, when we talk about swaddling blankets, I, I'll never forget, you know, the, the efforts of swaddling, swaddling my own um, firstborn when the necessity of her, of her rest was upon her that became very imperative that if we didn't wrap her up, and we used to call it like the burrito, you know, wrap her like a burrito, she will not sleep. Jesus is this picture. And the wise men are coming to worship him because he is king already in their, in their estimation. You know, and the question is, is that when you come to worship, do you really know that, that you say to yourself on Sunday morning, man, we need to go to church. It's responsible for us to go to church. Our children need to learn about what the Bible says and they need to, we need to go and it's good for us to go. But do you think about it in this clear of a picture? We come to worship the king each and every time we gather. And the, the magnitude of it is that we have intensely decided that we would pause our lives to come here to worship the King of Kings. We have come here to, to set aside all the other things. I know, I am distinctly aware of how busy your schedules are and how busy my own is. And I know that you could spend this time shopping and you could spend this time cooking and you could spend this time visiting with people that you haven't seen, that you feel bad about not seeing. But you have decided this morning to pause and say, we're going to set some time aside for God. We're going to see our Savior worshiped this morning. And for that I say, I am grateful to you for gathering in this place to do such, and I hope that your testimony will be that we will always do it because when the wise men saw the declaration of the heavens, they come to him as king. And, and the question that is in front of us is, if he is indeed king, then we, we should absolutely come and worship. But I say it's stronger than that for believers. It's not if, it's because. And so point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, is because Jesus is king, we should come to worship him. I hope that you will always come to worship him. Because he is king. They say it in the, in the scriptures, for we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. They bring him extravagant gifts, by the way. You know, there's this picture of them, and, and we won't get into that this morning, but there is this, 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 this declaration that I described all last holiday season about what the gifts signified. Verse 3 says, When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And I notice that if, you, if your translation it does any proper respect of, the, of the, the person of Jesus, then when it talks about Jesus as being the king, the king is capitalized. When it talks about Herod being the king, the king is not capitalized. And if your translation doesn't do it that way, just take a harder look at another translation. Because when the printed word doesn't get it right, I wonder. But he's king. And Herod and earthly kings get the lowercase k, that's okay with me. But earthly kings will fail us, won't they? I, I, I know that there's a lot of important things that will happen over the course of the upcoming year. We were promised in the Scriptures. We were promised 
all the way back to First and Second Samuel, that when the nation of Israel decided to reject God as king and to take an earthly king, that there would be nothing but heartache with the rulers that we would see. And we are testimony to it that earthly leaders, whether in our nation or others, disappoint us one after the next. They do. That's why the Scripture commands us to pray for them, to encourage them, to lift them up, to, to, to model for them, to ask of them, to be moral and to be right. Herod is not a great example of what a king should be. In fact, the, the history will tell you he's quite paranoid and he's, he's really a troubled soul. And it starts in the, in indicating those types of things all throughout Scripture, but here specifically, when he heard this, he was troubled, and it caused his entire nation to be bothered, and all Jerusalem with him. Man, what, what would that have looked like if Herod had been excited about Jesus? This Bible probably gets a little shorter then. Then the nation of Israel rejoiced, and as a result, everybody came to know Jesus, and, and the end, right? But because we oftentimes in our, in our earthly settings are threatened, the power and control that we think we possess, we are threatened when it is, when it is challenged. We oftentimes, we get, we get all worked up and we cause all those around us to get worked up. Israel is all troubled with him. It says, and when, and when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, we're going to build a committee. You know, and, and I'm going to poke a little fun at us Baptists here because we like to build committees, don't we? We're going to build a committee to make a committee. I've served on nominating committees, and that's what that committee is. It's a committee to make committees. How many committees does it take to make a committee? Well, typically one. How many people need to be on that committee? I mean, it's just this thing. We make committees to make committees to make committees. He joins all these wise people up around him, and they're like, uh, let's look at what the book says. And you know the funny thing is they go back and they look at the historical record, and what they find is, is evidence that this Messiah that was promised has been talked about through these pages here. He inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They're using the source text, by the way, to sort out this problem. It would be really powerful if they would just believe it and embrace it, wouldn't it? I suggest this is a problem in culture today, that we know what this book says and we've been told all about it, but we don't necessarily believe it. Man, if they believed it the way that the wise men who weren't even students of it believed it, what a world we live in. I think that if I were going to ask you to pray for any one thing for any leader in our world, whether it be in the church or in the secular society and governmental offices or whatever, if you were going to ask them for any one thing from God that you might ask them that they would believe this book from, from the beginning to the end, that they would believe it with all their heart. That would govern so much more of what, what would happen in the next days to come. But he's gathered up his group and they say, Verse number five, follow with me. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. I'm going to tell you, it's interesting. When Jesus is being tempted by, by Satan, Satan quotes all manner of scripture to him. These wise scribes and these, these council have quoted the prophets here. And they're about to read right out of Micah, and we're going to go to Micah and look at this. But they said, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. 
Bethlehem wasn't well known for much except for that it appears in these texts, these, these, these promises. And point number two is we get ready to turn the page and go backwards into, into the prophecy for your note-taking is that Jesus comes to the small that he can reach all. I know I made that one clever, huh? But the truth is this. Jesus is born right into this context of a name that would be very, very unknowable. It would be very distinctly small. But I think we know something about being something that doesn't always make sense in a context. We always think to ourselves and we ask ourselves this great question. You know, whenever people talk to me, and they'll say, where are you? And I'll tell them I'm in Begs. And they'll say, where's that? And I'll tell them where that's at. And they're kind of like kind of squinting at me if they're not from here. And then I'm like, yeah. Jesus came right to a place where everybody's like, where is that? You see, miracles can happen even in small contexts just like our own. Do I need to say it louder for those in the back? Miracles can occur even in small context. Your family need might seem like a small thing by comparison to the great big world around you, and you might be asking God for, for, for just such a thing. But size isn't the factor on whether or not God will move or act. We are grateful to be a gathering of believers that comes here and just absolutely astonishes the world around us. Because what I see around us is a world that is just like this picture of Israel was before Jesus is coming. A troubled world, a troubled community, a troubled people seeking for some bit of hope and they know not where to find it. But those of us that have gathered here, we know where to find it. And we have come to worship our King because we know where to find it. And I'm excited about that for the season. We look at the verses, and he talks about this. He talks about where, but, but moreover, the very last line in the, the verse that I just read, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people. And then he says Israel. You know, a lot in the news about Israel and what's going on there, and I hope you'll continue to pray for what's happening in the Middle East. Israel is a very small part of the air, I mean, surrounded by the Arab world all around it. And I will tell you that that trouble is there but there has been trouble there from the beginning. And part of the problem is, is that the lineage that goes all the way back there, it aggravates the world around it because it offers a hope that no one can own and that no one can reign in because it rules over everything else. That is Jesus. And I want you to know that you can't, you can't control him and you can't own him and you sure aren't in charge of him. And as a result, we go back and we, let's look together at Micah. I want to see something with you. I hope you'll see this. We get to Micah chapter 5. I'll give you a moment to, 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 to turn there. There's this picture. Um, article appears in a paper somewhere, and it says, uh, it all happened completely unexpectedly when the bird Chippy was just singing in its cage. The phone rings in the distance, and the, the, the owner of the bird is cleaning the cage with a vacuum, and is just stabbed the vacuum, taking the, the top off of it, and just stabbed the thing onto the, onto the side of the, the cage where it would, would hold suction while they attended the phone call. And the phone call begins and starts, and all of a sudden you hear this. <laughs> vacuum hoses come unattached, and the bird is swallowed by the machine. Feverishly, the phone call is no longer important. The phone is dropped and the, 
The owner begins to tearing the vacuum cleaner apart, trying to get to the bird, rescues the bird. The bird is filthy, but alive. Runs over to the sink, rinses the bird off. I don't know much about birds, but I'm telling you, I don't feel like this is a good idea. Bird is now shivering, looking up at the owner. Turns the whole world back to order and puts the, dries the bird and puts the bird back in the cage. The author of this article who wrote this personal interest piece decides just out of a whim to call and see how the bird was a few days later. And the owner says, Chippy doesn't sing anymore. Chippy just sits there and looks out the window. Kind of this post-traumatic stress of a violent action, unexpected, unwanted. Oftentimes I think that we're like that we go through a life that sometimes presents great and tremendous difficulties and challenges and the trauma of the unexpected oftentimes will keep us completely still and silent just waiting for the next crazy thing. Point number three is that Jesus comes amidst troubled times to prove He is equal to all of our troubles. Micah chapter 5, verse number 1. It says, Now gather yourself in troops, O daughters." of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on, his, on the cheek. And there's this picture of this, this array of, of enemies at the, at the gates that would lay siege. And this was common in Jewish culture for, or in, in Middle Eastern culture for siege warfare where cities had walls and they were completely self-sustaining within so long as trade could come in and out. But when an enemy would come, they would take and they would put an army around you and would stop blockade. They would stop everything from coming in and out. And so eventually, you're going to have trouble because if they cut your water off and your grain and your resources, you'll be, you'll be forced to surrender or perish. And this is the, this is the picture that the prophet Micah is saying is happening in the, in the world of of Israel. And then verse number two comes. And aren't you glad there's a verse number two? Because then it leans into the next part of the story. Yeah, there's trouble at the gate. And we're cut off from hope. But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose going forth are from of old, from everlasting. And the prophet begins to speak about this foreshadowing to the promise of the Christ that was going to interrupt the trouble of the world that Israel was facing and interrupt your trouble and my trouble. It was going to interrupt us in such a way that we might have hope and a hopelessness. Man, I'm always grateful whenever that word, that three-letter word pops up in Scripture, but because it always tells me that God is getting ready to do something in spite of the situation. Some of you today are probably inevitably in here and you're, and you're in a situation where you're saying, I'm not sure why I'm even here today or what good it does to go to church. And if that's you, then I hope that you'll hear me clearly that there is a but in your story that will give God the opportunity to change the dynamic course of everything in front of you because He has sent someone to rescue us. Now, I, I know that when we talk about this, that oftentimes people, people have all manner of conceptions about what that means, misconceptions about what that means as well. 
They, they believed all of this, this, this propaganda about who Jesus is instead of just seeing what he really is and what he offers. In the grand scheme of things, and I hope you'll hear me in this very clearly, Jesus offers us forgiveness for our sins and salvation that will fasten us to an eternity in front of us, a place in heaven for certain. And he gives us this, this, this powerful invitation to join him in the ever after. And oftentimes people somehow feel like that's not enough. This story right here is, is that Jesus is interrupting the possibility of you being cut off from all hope and he offers you hope in spite of it. He gives it to you and he gives it to you abundantly. It goes on, verse 3, to say, Therefore he shall give them up until that time that she who is in labor has given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. There's this mo moment. It seems like all of history is waiting for Jesus. When you read these stories, as you begin to get to this part, there's several hundred years of, of nothing. No prophetic voice. None of this stuff coming to pass. And then all of a sudden, it starts to roll. The gears start to turn. The engine turns over. And all of a sudden, we're off to the race. And all these prophecies are, are being fulfilled one after the next. Boom, 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 down the line. And it's moving at a fever pitch. And you get to this moment where you're like, what is God waiting for? He's waiting for the sheep to be desperately ready for him. You know, there's this picture of, of a shepherd that um, I want to say D.L. Moody was hearing a story from a, from a doctor who had been a, a shepherd. And he tells the story of the sheep in his, in his care would oftentimes climb up these steep, rocky passes and they would find these little patches in these weird crevasses and they would jump several feet down into these low spots and, and, and they would feast on this grass but they couldn't climb out. For all their skills and abilities, they couldn't get out. And Moody's like, so did you rescue the sheep? And he's like, not right away. And he's like, why not? He says, if I rescued them right away, they would just jump to the next crevasse as soon as I pulled them out of this one. He says, I would let them eat all the grass that was in there. I would let them become so faint that they were to the point where I saw their weakness and realized they couldn't stand anymore so that when I rescued them, they wouldn't wander anymore. And I've looked to the, to the scriptures and I realized that when you read this verse that it is a picture of this very thing where God knew that he needed to wait for us to be ready for him. In such a way, and some of us even in this place today, you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm to that faint point and there's no more grass to feast on and I'm in a spot I can't get out of. Verse 4 says, and he shall stand and feed his flock. In the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord High, or his God, excuse me, and he shall abide. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and this one shall be peace. And there's this picture of who he is in the midst of, of a sheepfold that thinks it knows what's good and would feast on all of the green grass of life around us that we are tempted to enjoy so deeply. And we would run into dangerous places and get stuck there frequently. And he is waiting for us to have only one answer, and that's him. I believe that that's the story of why he waited until the beginning of the New Testament to give us this, this beautiful fulfillment of all these prophecies because he knew the world was ready. The scripture promises it, by the way. The Apostle Paul writes about it. He says, in the fullness of time, God knew right when to do it. And so today you have to make a decision. This peace that he offers, it could be yours. Maybe 
a reinvestment in it. You in this place, maybe having known these truths, have wandered a little from this, from this path and are, are a, little, a little concerned about what life has presented to you, but you need this peace from this shepherd. You know, point number four is that he feeds the flock even today. Maybe you need his guiding hand to feed you even today. This bit of peace because we have tried it long enough our own way. I tell people my story, and in my story I talk about it, that when God began to speak to me in that still small voice, that his response to me was this. You have tried it your way long enough, how about mine? And like a sheep in a, in a weird spot with weak legs under me saying, anything to rescue me, anything right now to save me. And it was sometime later that I stopped resisting the harness, the lead, if you will, and I started asking him to be in charge of everything. You see, I'm convinced that you can be one of these sheep today and be wondering where your help is. And God is, is, is he's just asking the question, are you yet ready to come and be rescued? Because I believe that we in this place, we are presented an opportunity to respond even now. And in a moment, I'll pray and the musicians will come and I'll stand at the, at the front here and you can come and talk to me and we can talk about your life or whatever's going on. Maybe a believer that's wandered a little. Maybe, maybe you're, you're hearing this type of stuff and understanding it for the first time and giving you the opportunity to respond today would be something that would change your life. I hope that you would know that Jesus has come at the right time into this story, but he's also come at the right time even now this morning to rescue you. Would you be rescued today? Or would you walk out of here thinking that the green lush grass and your crevasse of stuckness is enough? Maybe you're not yet full. Maybe you're not yet empty. Or would you just say, I'm ready for the rope. Come and carry me out of here. That's the question today. Would you stand with me? Would you bow your heads? Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come. We thank you for the opportunity to worship. For you are indeed our king. The king who knows when. To not only be in charge, but also to guide us. You are king and shepherd, both in the same. Rescue us now, Lord, from our own pride. Rescue us now, Lord, from our own struggle. Rescue us, Lord, for we will no longer have the strength to stand on our own without you. I pray that we would surrender this morning. We would take the perch that we sit upon where we look out the window and we wonder when the next trauma is coming. And we would say, rescue me now. I'm ready. I ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.